Our scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 30, and then chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Uh, It's great to see you guys here this morning. We're continuing our series in the parables of Jesus. Parables are, uh, it comes from a word which means thrown alongside. And it's like you're walking along through a forest and you trip over a root or you trip over something, a rock on the ground, and it's, it, it, causes you to have to stop for a second. It, it causes you to have to think. And we've been looking at these parables all this fall and, and um, challenging, they're challenging stories by Jesus because they are put across our path to say, what about you? And this morning we're picking up a parable that is actually unique in that it's the only parable that Jesus tells that has included with it in the passage what it means. Very helpful for us this morning. So, you know, we read in verse 1, it says, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they should pray, not lose heart. They should not give up on praying. And, you know, Jesus has used this kind of um, focus on persistence and boldness and and um insisting with God in prayer at a bunch of places in the Bible. Maybe you're familiar where Jesus tells his followers to knock. You know, come and knock. You know, and, and the, the image there is like, you know, you're going to a friend's house tonight, and you go over to the, their house, and you knock on the door. Now, if you just rap one time on the door, um, this is what happens. The wife says, did you hear something? And the husband says, yeah, I think maybe something fell off a shelf upstairs, right? You don't knock once. You keep knocking, right? You knock several times. And Jesus' picture there is, look, I'm teaching you persistence, boldness in prayer. 
And we, we can read about that in several places. In fact, some of you were here last week and you may say, this, this feels kind of like a rerun, right? You, like we read last week about a man who has a guest who arrives in the middle of the night and who, um, with it, when his guest shows up, he doesn't have anything to feed him. And neighbor, he, he bugs a neighbor until the neighbor helps him out. And, and it's a picture, again, of boldness, shamelessness, and prayer. Um, but if you come and you, you read through this parable, everything makes sense. If we can go back one slide here. Until you get to the last verse. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And if, if you're at all tuned in, you're like, huh? And it shows us that we actually are reading a parable that's a part of a larger conversation. It's like walking in the room and you get you walk in on the middle of a conversation and you're like, what did you say? This is actually what this parable should tell you. We're walking in on a bigger conversation. This parable is not just about persistence in prayer, but is actually taking that to a laser-sharp focus. This is like a parable that comes with a laser scope on it, and Jesus is teaching them to pray with persistence for the coming of God's kingdom. Praying with persistence for the coming of God's kingdom. Just like we prayed a moment ago. You guys know when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we said, God, would your kingdom come and would your will be done right here in this place to the same degree, with the same fervency, with the same expectation that it's done in heaven. Now, I would tell us, I would tell you that we pray that prayer. We pray that prayer actually pretty regularly within our church. But I would say a lot of us, we can't meaningfully pray that prayer unless we know what it fully means. So we're going to look at the conversation Jesus is having and why he tells them to pray for God's kingdom to come. Would you look at me with this passage? And we're going to look back at particularly at, at uh, the section here from chapter 17. In chapter 17, Jesus is having an, a conversation And he's talking with two groups of people. He's talking to the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. And he's also talking to the disciples. And he's telling them about God's kingdom. And look what he says here in in verse um, 20. The Pharisees say, Jesus, when? When is your kingdom going to, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And, you know, here's what they meant. When will the king that God has promised come and overthrow these invaders in our country. Israel at the time was an occupied territory. The Roman government was an oppressive regime. And so these people were saying, when? We are waiting for God to come and show up and send us a king that's going to come kick some butt and clean house and establish a kingdom here with a king for us. And we're going to be free. They were hoping that God would come and establish their autonomy again. And Jesus' answer was baffling. He says, look, if you're looking for some kind of outward event, some like catastrophic event, some war, some, you know, came to come marching on Jerusalem, you're going to miss it. Because the kingdom of God is already here. It's already quietly in your midst. So they're asking when, and he says, already here. And then... In the next section, he talks to his disciples and he warns them about making the opposite mistake. These are people who've been walking with Jesus. They're like, Jesus, you are the one. You are the king. And Jesus says, but it, 
This isn't all there is, folks. There's more coming. He says, look, you know, it's going to be like the day. It's going to be like lightning in the sky. Nobody's going to have to say, hey, did you see that? Because it will be obvious to everyone. So Jesus is saying something profound here. He's saying, there's something that's already here in your midst. And there's a kingdom that's not yet here in its fullness. There's something that's already here. Jesus has shown up. There's an offer of forgiveness of sins. We read in the Bible about how Jesus says, hey, Satan doesn't have the same power that he once had. He's bound. There's an extension of the kingdom to all kinds of people. All these things were happening in Jesus' day. There's the sign of the church showing up. But Jesus is saying, wait, there's something not yet. There's going to be a day when every tear will be dried from the eyes. When all the injustices, all the things that are broken in this world are set right. When everything is made whole that right now is a mess. Jesus is saying, the kingdom's coming. It's, it's already here, but it's coming. You know, and these questions that the disciples are asking and that the Pharisees are asking are always the questions that people are asking about the future. You know, this kind of thinking about the future of God's kingdom is it's a theological word which means eschatology. And some of you grew up in weird sections of Jesus' church where that's pretty much what they talk about all the time, eschatology. When, Jesus, are you going to come back and how is that going to happen? You know, is it going to be like, you know, crazy Russian armies and tanks and helicopters? You know, some of you are like, yeah, I know what this is like. This is weirdness and I grew up in it. There are certain parts of the church that are fixated on eschatology. And, you know, how these, these two questions, how is it going to happen and when is it going to happen? You know, and it can seem to, to others of us kind of weird, kind of like people who care about how many craters are there on the dark side of the moon. That's an interesting question, I guess, if you're an astronomer, but it's it seems irrelevant. What run writer Peter Kreeft said, Actually, though, I would tell you that eschatology, what happens in the future, is intensely practical. It matters. It's like someone, it's not like craters on the dark side of the moon. It's like someone tells you, hey, there's dynamite somewhere in your neighborhood right now. And everybody wants to know where the dynamite is in the neighborhood, right? Why? Because dynamite has explosive power. And how you think about the future, I will tell you, has explosive power in your life for how you live in the present. Let me give you this example. Um, so a friend of mine named Martin, uh, lives out west, was telling me about going to go see the movie Inception this summer. And Martin and his wife are always late everywhere. So they had um, bought their tickets and online they show up at the movie theater like fashionably late they figure they're through the credits uh, all the the previews at this point and so they walk in the theater and the movie's already started and they're sitting there and they're they're trying to follow what's going on and about after 15 minutes the credits come up and he's like wow that was the shortest movie i have ever seen and his wife is elbowing him. She's like, you dummy, we went to the wrong theater. You know. So they, they, they caught the end of it. And so they, they realize what's happened. They run across the lobby to the other theater where they're showing Inception. 
and it's just starting up, right? They've just gotten through the marathon of previews, and actually they're there on time. And so he sits through the movie, and he's, he's sitting there, he's like nodding as he's going along. He's like, oh, that makes sense. Oh, you know, this, this is adding up. This, this kind of works out. I see how this all is unfolding. Now, compare that to my experience going to Inception. So Susan and I go to Inception, and we're late, okay? So we don't even, we're supposed to eat dinner beforehand. Something happened. I show up at this theater starving, and I'm like, I can't believe we're going to sit through this stupid movie. But we sit through this movie, and I forget that I'm hungry because it's so overwhelming. It's so bewildering. You know, I, I'm, I'm sitting going like, what's going on? And who is that? And wh- why are they doing that? And now, which layer of the story? Were, do, you, do you see the difference between those two experiences? See, Martin, he enjoyed the movie. I endured the movie. <laughs> and I find that this is actually really true for us. See, Christians say, we know the ending. We know the ending. We know how this thing's going to end up. And therefore, a Christian eschatology, being able to say, I think about the future. I think about the coming of God's kingdom where he's going to make everything right, allows you to not be bewildered, to be confused, to be upset by the ups and downs and the plot twists of this life where other people are enduring it and they're just like white-knuckled, How are we going to get through this thing? Christians who think about the future say, I know how this is going to turn out. I know how this is going to be going to end. I find that one of the ways that, you know, Christians are impoverished is we don't think very clearly about the future of God's kingdom. You know, it's like being nearsighted. You know, um, being nearsighted, which means you have to have glasses to be able to see things that are far away in the distance. You have to, be, you have, to gla- have glasses to look at things out on the horizon. You can see what's up close to you. And, you know, I find that many of us, our faith is backward-looking. And backward-looking faith is good, right? Every week we come around this table here and we celebrate a death and a resurrection. And we say, look what happened in the past. Isn't God faithful? And yes, you should delight in that. But every other area of your life, you're future-oriented. You're goal-setting people. You're thinking about what's next. You're planning. Every other area of your life, you think about the future. Why? Why are we people who are bewildered? Why are we people who are anxious? Because in a lot of ways, we don't think enough about the fullness of what God promises for us in his future. We're nearsighted. And eschatology is like putting on glasses that say, There is something coming. There's something worth hoping for and talking about and dreaming about besides this life plus a little more. Isn't that what we think about? It's hard for us to imagine something besides this life plus a little bit more money. This life plus a little better job. This life plus a little more security. This life plus a little more relationship. That's how we think. You know... As I said before, the two main questions that we come that these people were asking, the Pharisees and the disciples, is Jesus, when's this going to happen? How's it going to happen? And Jesus tells a parable to say there's a better question. There's a much better question. Let's look at this parable together. Review it with me. <clears throat> two main characters here. 
There's a destitute widow and an unrighteous judge. You know, in, in first century Palestine, a widow was by far the most vulnerable person in society. Women in Jesus' day didn't have the right to, to vote, to conduct transactions legally, to be able to buy and sell property. Everything legally, any legal standing, had to be procured through a husband or a father. And so Jesus, when Jesus tells this story of, the unright, of, this, of this widow, and she's destitute, it's, it's telling you something. There, there's, there's been a system that's been set up in Jesus' day. There's supposed to be somebody who advocates for this kind of person. And yet, for some reason, this system has failed her. She's destitute. She should not be in this condition. And, and then it tells you about who's responsible, right? We read about there's a, um, there's a judge. And this is, the, this is the person who's supposed to be her advocate. You know, and it tells us something funny about the judge. It's meant to be a little humorous. Jesus says, this is a person who neither feared God nor cared about people. And actually the judge turns around and says the same thing about himself. I neither fear God nor care about people. You know, and, and, but you have to ask the question, well, what's the dude doing being a judge? Right? Those are the two wells out of which people draw justice. Right? This judge, if he'd been at least a person who cared about people, who had compassion, who was like, the law is meant to give sanctuary to this type of person, at least that might have worked for her. Or if he'd been a person who had some kind of internal keel, some kind of moral integrity that came from a belief in God, but this guy has neither one. And, you know, here's the punchline, right? If this wicked, corrupt judge will give her justice, will give her justice because she's just knocking, she's just bothering him, then surely God, who is just who is compassionate, will give justice. He will show up. See, the disciples, the Pharisees wanted to say, when is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? When's God going to bring his kingdom? And, the, and how is this going to happen? And Jesus says there's a better question. And it's this, so what? If there is a truly a king, if there's truly a judge who's going to make everything right, who's not like the guy in this parable, then how should we live? And see, right, the picture's held up for us. Be like the woman. Be like the woman who comes, you know, banging on the door. Surely God is just. Surely he will make things right. I think we need that so what question shoved in our face. When I was researching for this sermon, I realized that almost nobody preaches on it. I think almost no pastors preach on it because we don't like this story. We don't relate to the story. You know, think about this with me. Why, why would we not really want to hear this sermon? Why, why is this a weird one for us? I would tell you two reasons. One of the reasons that we don't long for Jesus' not yet kingdom is that we're building a kingdom here on earth for ourselves already. You know, it's one of the reasons that we don't just find this, it's, it's not just hard for us relate, to relate to the widow, but it's distasteful to, for us. It's because we don't want to see ourselves as vulnerable. We're not all that hungry 
for God to make everything right. We're hungry for God to give us a little more. You know, we don't long for heaven. We don't long for God to bring the fullness of the kingdom because we're building our, our own little Disney magic kingdom right here for ourselves. We're making, trying to make our lives work. And if we could just have a little bit of help from God to make that happen, that would be help. That would be great. You know, my favorite author, Wendell Berry, captures this um, in his poem called Manifesto. Listen to what he says about life in the magic kingdom. He writes, Love the quick profit, the annual raise and vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die, and you will have a window in your head. Not even the future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be a punch will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. It's a small view of living. You and I need to think critically about why we don't think about God's future. We need to think about why we don't think about God's future. You know, why don't you long for God's future? Isn't it because you, like me, we're building our little kingdoms. We're building ice, like, like somebody's building an ice sculpture in a sauna. It's foolishness. We're working so hard. In the same poem by Wendell Berry, he says this, Practice resurrection. There's a better kingdom worth living for. There's a better hope than just... My stuff plus a little more. The other reason we don't relate to this parable, that we don't like this woman, that we don't want to be like this parable, we don't want to think about this, is because we shield ourselves and protect ourselves from people like her. Don't we? You know, we protect ourselves. We work really hard. We, we Think about what we do. We take people who make us uncomfortable people who make us feel the injustice of this world, and we put them out of our lives. So we take old people and we put them in cold storage, I mean nursing homes. You know, we, take, we take, make it so like the unjust judge, we can't hear the plight of the widow. We live in neighborhoods that are just like us. We, we want to insulate our lives from people who would cause us to, be, to feel the injustice. We distract ourselves with the real news, with the sports news, and the entertainment news, and the fashion news, and the product reviews. We insulate our lives from this. Nobody wants to feel this. But see, Christians in ages past have taken great comfort in eschatology. People who've allowed their lives to brush up against injustice, people who have walked through injustice, have taken great, great comfort in eschatology. The deepest, some of the deepest longing expressed by Christians toward the coming of God's kingdom was expressed by African slaves who were forcibly brought to the United States and forced to work in the cotton plantations of the Deep South. And you hear their songs. And their songs are about about Jerusalem and Zion and God making all things right. And they sang these things with hope in their eyes, saying, this isn't fairy tale. This, we have confidence. We have confidence in this king. 
See, this has come out in the mouth, through the mouth, through the singing of people, Christians in the past. This has also come out in their prayers. And that's, isn't that what this, this parable is about? Jesus tells them, remember verse 1, telling you this parable so that you would pray and not give up. So you would pray and not give up in light of the apparent delay of justice, in the light of the fact that God's allowing this earth to keep spinning around and stuff is still not working and there's still injustice and pain and some of you are dealing with it every day at work, yet there's still hope and God calls us to pray. It's an expectant kind of praying. You know, it's funny, is this woman, Jesus talks about her, you know, he tells this, this parable for us to say, that's the kind of praying we should be doing. This kind of persistent. Yes, God, would you come and bring the fullness of your kingdom? Yes, would you make all things right? You know what the language is here? The judge says, she keep, verse 5, she will, she'll keep beating me down with her continual coming. It's a language from a boxing ring. Literally, it means two black eyes. She's beating me up. Here's the most powerful man in the culture being beaten up by this poor defenseless widow because she's knocking and insisting upon justice. And God says, that's the way I want you to pray. That's the way I want you to pray. You know, when you look at this world and you see what's broken, you see what's marred, you see what's not right, I want you to give me black eyes. I want you to come with that kind of boldness. God, we long for you to make things right. Now look, why don't we pray this way? It's because for the kingdom of self, for, if you're like me, you live in the kingdom of self. You're not thinking about the kingdom of God. And we don't have all that much that's all that incredibly important to pray for. But look at this kind of prayer. How do you learn to pray like this? You have to be confident of two things. First, you have to be confident in the character of the judge. You have to be confident in the character of judge. Now look, why do you think, this is troubling to me as I read this, maybe it's troubling to you, why do you think that Jesus chooses an unjust judge in this passage to represent God? Why do you think that? I'll tell you what I was thinking. Because that's what we think about him all the time. See, when we look, and you look at the lives of your friends and your family, and you read off of their lives pain. If you look at the news, and you look at it and you say, tragedy. Don't we say, God's kind of an unjust judge. There's something about us that wants to indict him. And Jesus holds up this up to say, look, you've got to know the character of the judge. You have to know this. You know, we look at the world and we say, there seems to be an uneven distribution. We know some people whose lives seem always worry-free, and other people's lives seem like an electron magnet for problems and pain. Jesus is showing us, this is not what God is like, but this is what you think God is like. You know, Christian hope finds its greatest longing, its greatest character, it's great, it's rooted this, not in, you know, like Annie, like the sun will come out tomorrow, bet your bottom dollar. I wish this were true. It finds its greatest rootedness in the character of God. This is who your God is. It's like, um, consider watching a, pic, a Pixar movie. 
You know, I never have to worry about my kids sitting through a Pixar movie, even if I've never seen it. You know, I know the character of the production company. You know, Woody and Buzz are not going to end up in some kind of version of Saw 3D. It's not going to be blood and guts. Right? It's going to work out. Why? Why do, I, why do I not worry about that? Because I know the character of the production company. Look, you have to know the character of your God. That God is a just God. That God's eyes well with tears more, infinitely more than yours for the pain and the effect of sin in this world. That's the character of our God. How do you learn to pray like this? You've got to know God's character. And second, how do you learn to pray like this? You've got to start leaning in. You have to be confident of the fact that God will bring vindication. You see the point in here. Jesus speaks this in verse 7. He says, and won't God bring vindication to his people? And the answer is like, yes, he will. You better believe he will. That's, That's kind of what he's looking for there. Yes, of course he will. That's how you learn to pray like this. Now, that's all great. That's, all, that's kind of like backdrop. But how, what does this look like? What does this look like? You know, this kind of praying looks like three things. And I want to give this to you by way of application briefly. First is praying for God to hasten his kingdom. To hasten his kingdom. This is the kind of prayer that Jesus is urging on us. You know, to learn to groan for the judge to bring the fullness of his kingdom. Bring it. You know, most of our prayer meetings, most of our times gathered for prayer in our home meetings or your personal prayer, what are those prayers about? I would say they're about these things. Finances, jobs, housing, you know, sick people, maybe missionaries, maybe, um, you know, maybe you get around to, praying for the civic authorities. One of my friends used to talk about how Christians come together and they do organ concerts where we pray for, you know, Uncle, uh, you know, Uncle Joe's knees and we pray for um, Grandpa George's, you know, liver and we pray for Mom's back. It's all about organs. We're just reciting organs that need to be fixing. You know, and do our, do our prayers ever, char- are they ever characterized by this kind of, Jesus, bring it! Bring it. You know, I, don't, I shouldn't make fun of organ recitals. Those things are important. And Jesus tells us in other places to knock and to ask. But if that's all that our prayers are about, then we're missing out on the fullness of what Jesus has told us. This is what your prayer life should be like. Jesus, would you make things right? Would you bring the fullness of your kingdom? You know, do we wear down God asking for him? To set this world aright. Do we, do we just knock and say, Jesus, I can't wait for you to come back and make things right. Think with me. Do the injustices of this world, of this life, of this city, of the people around you, cause you to cry out, Lord, come. Do they cause you to knock? Jesus, you are a righteous judge. You promise you'll make everything right. Maranatha. It's the last word of the Bible. Lord, come. 
I can't wait. Or, or, do those injustices harden your heart and turn you away from God because you really don't know his character? You're like, yep, this confirms everything I thought about God. He's an unjust judge. He doesn't care. Look, do the pains and the inequities of this life, do the hurts make you long and, and cry out for God's glorious future in prayer? You know, do they, do they move you to cry out, now, Lord, surely now? Or do you just seek out the quick buzz, the distraction, you know, seeking out just a TV show, something to kind of numb you from the fact that this world is so broken? It is, it's a wondrous thing. In Second Peter 3, God tells us that as we pray for the coming of the fullness of God's kingdom, that in some strange way, and I cannot explain how this works, I, this is a mystery, but in some strange way, we are hastening, he writes, hastening the day of the Lord. It's like, you know, this, this morning was fall back day for daylight savings. This spring, you'll turn your clock forward. And in some way, when we pray, God, your kingdom come, we want it. It's like we're turning the clock up. We're saying, Jesus is going to bring this faster. In some wondrous way, I don't know how this works, Jesus works through these prayers of his people for this. See, there's truth behind the quote that I mentioned last week. David Wells says, prayer is rebellion against the status quo. Prayer is not readjusting your view of God. He's an unrighteous judge. Prayer is not just kind of resigning yourself to what is. Prayer is saying, God, this is what you've said you're like. This is what you've said you want to happen. Make this happen. John Piper writes that prayer is like taking your little wire and plugging it into the lightning bolt of heaven. That God somehow uses the prayers of weak people for the furtherance and the coming of his kingdom. And it will be supercharged. How do you pray for this? You pray. You hasten the day of his coming. Now, some of you, when I talk about all this, are freaked out. You know, and you're like, time out, Bradford. <laughs> Praying for God to come back? I know what that means. We've read about destruction. We've read about the coming of a judge. And I know... Or at least I'm pretty sure that I'm a person who's going to be indicted on that day. That the coming of God's kingdom, one of the things that we should be praying in this, one of the ways I'm asking you to wake up this morning, hey, you there? Come on, wake up. Is some of you act like this isn't real. You know, everything else looks real. This looks like fairy tale land. But Jesus says, no, look, hey, wake up, there's coming a day. Would you pray you're a part of it? And see, what we see in this passage is this woman, this weak and vulnerable woman, is looking for an advocate. Someone who will stand and say, this is going to be the way it's going to be. We're going to make her situation right. Look, God has provided this in Jesus. 1 John 2 tells us this. We have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot stand before a righteous judge. Jesus himself 
the one who's talking about this. He's talking about his, his, he's the advocate. And if you're in a position this morning where you're like, you're freaking me out, good. You need an advocate with the Father, and God promises that he has already provided this in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if this is kind of like, you're like, I'm, I need to get out of here, I want to tell you that the coming judgment of God is a real thing, and that God has given you everything you need, and it's a righteous judge. And he will stand before you. God, Jesus said, look, if you stand and own me before other people, I will stand before my Father in heaven and say, this is mine. And he is a righteous advocate. And he will stand up for you. The last thing I'll say about praying for this is praying for ourselves to endure. You know, remember this last verse we read. It's a very strange verse. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's an odd statement. And yet, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, will you be a part of this? Will you endure? You know, Jesus has described, just before this in chapter 17, he said, look, he gave two examples. He says, look, there were two periods of time where God brought about a cataclysmic, catastrophic event. And this is what the days were like. At first he talks about the days of Noah, and he says, verse 27, in that day... What was it like? It was like any other day. People were eating and drinking. They were buying and selling things. They planted. They built. What's he saying? In other words, we can expect the future coming day, when God comes to make everything right, will be like any other day. And then he talks about the day of Lot and the the destruction of Sodom. And he says, he doesn't say, in verse 28, anything that's in and of itself sinful. He doesn't say, these were particularly bad people that day. Look at what he says. He says, here they were. They ate and drank and bought and sold and planted and built. You know, judgment didn't come on Sodom because it was, merely because it had people who were sinning in it, but also because good, ordinary activities of life were going on and people were acting like, this is what life is. This is all that life is. In other words, the good things in life, the good things in life, the normal, regular, day-to-day things in life have the same power as sinful, bad, bad, bad things out there to distract us from the reality of who God is and the coming of his kingdom. You know, see, the disciples are left. Therefore, they come to this passage and they're like, what? They should be asking this question. How will we endure to the end? How will we endure to the end? You know, how are we going to maintain this battle to have heartfelt, radical faith in this kind of God through the end? Not just in the face of sinful things, but in the face of normal life. I mean, isn't that the challenge for us? We who live in the Disneyland of the universe, who want to make magic kingdom, little magic kingdoms out of our lives, The challenge is not, for most of us, the big bad things out there. It's the distraction of the everyday. And again, the call here is for us to pray. Pray. It's part of enduring to the end. It's part of the way that we endure. You know, Jesus, again, think about here, he talks about a woman who needs an advocate. And we read here, again, in the New Testament in John... Chapter 14, 
He not only, John not only calls Jesus our advocate, he also calls the Holy Spirit our advocate, who walks with us, who prays for us in the midst of this life. Brothers and sisters, my call for you this morning is this. Do you long for something more than what is? Do you long for Jesus to come and make everything right? And do you see yourself as part of that? Are you building little sculptures out of ice in the sauna? Are you building sand castles on a beach that are just going to be washed away? Jesus' call for us this morning, and this is a hard sermon to hear, is this. When you see this life, when you look at the tragedies, don't numb out. Don't distort your image of who your God is. Pray. Long for this coming. Long for this kingdom. Long for the God who promises this judge to make all things right for his glory. Your greatest hope is not a wish. It's not... It's not something we're making up. It's that the greatest stories barely touch the reality of the fullness of what Jesus promises in bringing all things into his kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.